the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Today's guest, Mitch Albon, has written books that have made a difference in the lives of millions around the world. Mitch is an internationally renowned and best-selling author, screenwriter, broadcaster, and musician. His books, which include Tuesdays with Maury, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, and For One More Day, have collectively sold more than 40 million copies worldwide. Mitch's work has been made into Emmy Award-winning and critically acclaimed television movies. His new book is The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Welcome, Mitch. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. So, Mitch, I am so happy to have you on the show because your work has made an impact on my life, as it has for millions around the world. So how does a sports journalist end up writing such heartwarming, thought-provoking books? Uh, well, it was a journey. Uh, let's put it that way. I, I, I didn't always uh, delve in these subjects or, or write about. These are, quite frankly, wasn't the kind of person who even thought about these type of topics. I was a sports writer uh, for the first you know, 15 years of my career, uh, and a very ambitious one at that. Uh, I was in, writing for newspapers. I was on ESPN television. I did radio. I worked about 90 hours a week. Go, go, go. And then when I was 37 years old, I happened to be flipping through the TV channels and caught the Nightline program. And did a double take because there on the screen was a thin, sickly, white-haired version of an old professor of mine who I had had in college, who I been very close to, but hadn't seen in 16 years because I was so busy pursuing my career and my ambition. And then I found out through this program that this professor, whose name was Maury Schwartz, was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. And I only found that out because I happened to catch him on this TV program. And I felt rather guilty about it. I called them up thinking I would just make one phone call and that would be the end of it. Uh, I had a kind of a, uh, a very sweet conversation with them on the phone. At the end, he asked if I would come visit him. So I said, well, I'll just come visit him, but that'll be one time. And then I'll be done with it. And the visit was so impressive uh, and made such an impression on me that I began to go back again and again and again, and I ended up going every Tuesday that he had left, and I sort of had a last class in what's important in life once you really know you're going to die, which Maury did. And it turned out that everything that he felt was important were things that I was not valuing in my own life. And so from that point forward, I began to turn some things around. I wrote a little book called Tuesdays with Maury just to pay for his medical bills. I was going to go back to being a sports writer and all that, uh, hopefully with a little better knowledge. And then this book, Tuesdays with Maury, became something I never could have imagined and sort of turned my whole life around. Tuesdays with Maury was my introduction to your work. It was a couple of years after it came out. And my dad had just passed away. And that was when I found the book. And the lessons that were part of that were, were really important to me in the healing of that loss. Can you tell us a little bit about Maury and, and what were some of the biggest things that he taught you? Well, there were so many, uh, including death and to life, but not a relationship. Meaning that <clears throat> if you 
had a good relationship with someone while they were alive, they can live on in your in your heart and your head, you know, and all the things that you share. But only if you spent that time together while you were alive. And that was a really important thing for me. A lot of people think that, you know, they'll just get to the end and suddenly when they realize they're going to die, that in like the last three days, they'll make up for all the time they didn't spend with their loved ones. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Another really critical one was giving is living, which is something that I have tried to um, incorporate into my, my life. I, I had noticed that many people would come to Maury trying to cheer him up because you know, he was dying and they thought it was their obligation. But after about an hour with him, you know, they'd come out of the room crying about their divorce or their love life or their work. Or, and they'd say, I went to try to cheer him up, but he ended up asking me all these questions and I ended up crying and he ended up cheering me up. And, you know, I, I don't know why, but uh, he gave me more than I gave him. And I asked Maury once, why are you doing this? You're the one who's dying. You know, why don't you take the sympathy? And he said, Mitch, taking like that just makes me feel like I'm dying. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. And that was a profound lesson for me because I realized if this man who's really realizes he's, he's you know, got weeks left on this earth and what makes him feel the most alive is giving to other people, then that has to be true for us now, you know, in our younger and healthier years. And I, I started my first charity that year and I have been, you know, kind of deeper and deeper and deeper into that world ever since. Do you remember Maury to be this type of person, or did he change when he got his prognosis? No, he was he was like that, even as a professor. Um, it was one of the reasons I loved him. You know, I took every class that he offered. All the kids loved him like that. He, I mean, I think it was more profound, and I don't think he thought so much about death, uh, but he was always kind, and he would always say things like, you don't have to buy the culture if you don't like it. I mean, it's okay to be different. And uh, he, he was he was known for uh, once he went to a basketball game when he was a professor at our college and everybody was cheering. We're number one. We're number one. He popped up and he said, what's the matter with being number two? Like he was just that kind of, uh, you know, counter sort of thinker. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure it was brought to the fore more by his imminent death. But, no, he, he didn't he didn't have some gallows transformation. He, he, he was always a, a kind and and caring and loving individual. So you had a career as a sports writer, and then you went down this journey with Maury, and and it changed so much of your life. Did you think you would go back to sports then? Or, you know, what kept you on this path for the types of work that you went on to write that had such an impact on so many of us? Well, to be honest, Joan, it it was the reaction from people, first in my community and then around the country and then around the world, I, when I was a sports writer, and I was, you know, pretty well-known sports writer, and uh, I was on television, as I mentioned, and so people would recognize me, and they would often stop me in the airport as I was walking by, and they'd say, hey, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And I would just keep walking and say, you know, the Patriots, and that was it. That's all they wanted out of me. And then after Tuesdays with Maury, it started to become this book that nobody could have figured. I mean, they only printed 20,000 copies of that book. You know, it's now sold over 20 million copies, uh, but, but, you know, nobody anticipated that as it began to grow, people would stop me in those same airports. But instead of saying who won the Super Bowl, they'd say, Hey, uh, my mother died of cancer. And the last thing we did was read your book together. Can I talk to you about her? And, you know, you can't say Patriots and just keep walking. You you have to stop and engage. And I began to stop and engage and stop and engage and stop and engage dozens of times a day. And if I went out to a book signing or something like that, hundreds of times a day with people's stories about grief and sadness and love and, and relationships and people who were their Maury's and they would open their wallets and take out pictures and say, this was my Maury. And, and I don't know, just that part of the world and what really mattered in life began to overwhelm me, you know, and, and envelop me really much more than sports. And when it came time to write another book, I had no interest in writing anything about sports. I, I wanted to write about those topics, and I wrote a novel uh, just to be different because I knew I couldn't write anything like Tuesdays with Maury, whatever I did in nonfiction, whatever it was going to be with Pale in comparison. It was six years later. So I tried this little novel called The Five People You Meet in Heaven, and it found a, you know just as big an audience uh, as Tuesdays with Maury, and that began my, my life as a novelist. You know, and I, th- I think the thing is there, there are so many people – that are going through things, particularly today, 
with, um, you know, what we've just gone through with COVID and the pandemic. And there's so much grief and so much pain. And and what you write about gives all of us hope. And so how does it feel for you, uh, feel to you when someone comes up to you and tells you that you help them get through what may be the worst experience of their life? Well, I'm, I'm very gratified. I, obviously, you know, anybody would be, but, but I, I try not to take the credit for that. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I always say I, I'm not the person with all the answers. And sometimes people who would read Tuesdays with Maury, they would come up to me after a book signing or a speech and they would say, Maury, can I ask you a question? And I would always say, I'm Mitch, someone, you know, I was right. the one who didn't, have, you know, I asked all the questions. I didn't have the answers. And I'm still the dumb one. You know, I'm still asking the questions. Just ask the questions in the book and I, in the books that I write. And even this new one, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, which has, has found such a big audience in such a short period of time. And I've been wondering myself why that is. And I think you tapped into it when you said, you know, the way that we're coming out of this pandemic with so many questions, and looking for hope. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, I guess I wrote it you know, during that pandemic and I wrote it out of the aftermath of losing a child. And, and I was looking for hope and some healing too. And, and so a lot of the things that I go through, I just try to put the same kind of questions that I'm asking in the book and uh, whatever book I'm working on and pose them. And in this case, I put them in the mouth of some people who are, who are stuck on a, a life raft and uh, they're asking them of a very unusual person. But um, I ask the same questions that I think other people ask and then just try to answer them in the way that smart people in my life have taught me or experience in my life has taught me and people seem to gravitate to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about your new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat? Sure. So it begins, uh, it's probably the biggest sort of thriller book that I've ever written, an adventure thriller book. And, and it's odd because uh, people don't think of me that way, but wrapped inside of it is a very unique tale. It's, it's, it's about this luxury yacht that is owned by one of the richest people in the world. And he throws this big soiree on it with all these famous celebrities and influencers and business people. And, and uh, it's out in the middle of the ocean. It explodes mysteriously. And everybody's killed except 10 people who managed to get to a life raft, five of whom are rich guests on the, from the boat and five of whom are just workers from the boat. And they're in this life raft for three days. Nobody is coming looking for them. They're running out of food and water. They see sharks. They're, you know, crying out for help, they're, they're lost and they're desperate. And all of a sudden, they see on the third day, they see this body floating in the water and they pull it into the boat. And it's this young guy, very nondescript, average looking guy, and he's alive. And they start peppering him with all kinds of questions. He doesn't say anything, he doesn't speak. And finally, one of the passengers says, Well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. And that begins this sort of uh, tale of what happens to these 10 castaways in this life raft who do not think that this guy is the Lord because he doesn't look like it. He's skinny and he gets hungry really fast and he's thirsty and he falls asleep a lot. And yet as the days pass, things start happening. And, you know, they said, what are you doing here if you're God? And he says, well, haven't you been calling me? I came because you called me. And they say, oh, so right, so you're going to save us? And he says, well, I can only save you if everybody in the boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. And, of course, that doesn't happen very often. Ten people don't agree on anything, you know, in this world. And yet as they get more desperate, uh, we see that some of them start to turn in that direction. And really, John, it's a, it's a book about help. And when we cry out for help, and I've cried out for help in the last few years, especially after losing our little girl you know, who died from a brain tumor. And, um, other people have been crying out for help during COVID, you know, uh, please don't let me get the disease. Don't let my loved ones get the disease. Help this person is in the hospital. Don't let me lose my job, whatever the case may be. And I got to thinking that, you know, when it comes to asking for help, we always want our help the way we want, like a sandwich in a deli. You know, we order it and we expect it to come out quickly and look like, what we ordered and when it doesn't come right on time or it doesn't isn't what we look like we think well i'm being ignored god's ignoring me the world is ignoring me the universe isn't answering my prayers but yet five years ten years down the road we look back on that moment and we say well you know what i remember thinking how bad that was for me but if that didn't happen then this wouldn't happen and then i wouldn't have met this person we wouldn't have gotten married we're not kids so i guess when i look back on it maybe that was the best thing that could have happened to me well 
if it's the best thing that could have happened to you 10 years from now, it may well be the best thing that could happen to you right now. It's just that we don't accept that because, you know, we want our help the way we want it, when we want it, what we think it should be. And so here's this character who's saying, I'm the Lord, I'll help you. Uh, I'll get you out of this thing. All you got to do is believe that I'm what I'm saying and nobody wants to believe him. And I'm not saying he is or isn't God. You're going to have to read the book to figure that out. There's more to it than, than that. But, but it's that whole question of what do we do when we cry out for help if, if, it, if it comes but doesn't look like what we expected. I, over the past 10 years, have gone through so much loss in my life, and that's really the result of the work I'm doing now. This is why I do what I do. And one of the things I've learned is that everything does happen for a reason or for a, a a greater purpose. And and it's not easy when you're in the throes of grief to understand that. But when you look back, you really can see that there are blessings and gifts in every situation, but they're not easy to see. You Mm. have to look for them, but they are there. And and I think that the book that you just described, there really couldn't have been a better time to put this book out. You're right about what you just said. I mean, right on the money. And it's also the angle from which we look back you know there's different ways to look back and there's a moment in in this in this book where uh one of the passengers confronts this god character with the ultimate question which of course is you know why do people die and in his case he lost his wife uh and he's he's crying and he says why did you take my wife why did she have to die why did you take her and this god character says well why do people always ask, why did God take somebody when they die? Maybe a better question is, why did God give them to us? Why did we have them for all that time? What did we do to deserve their love or their sweetness or their memory? Didn't you have moments like that with your wife? And he says, every day. And the God character says, well, those moments are a gift, but their absence is not a punishment. I know that you cry for people when they leave this earth. People always do, but I can assure you, they're not crying. And, you know, I, I wrote that as honestly as much for me and, and how I have to deal with the loss of our, 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 our little adopted girl as much as for the readers, but it's universal. And as I say, it's how you choose to look back on it. If you choose to look back on what you lost, you're going to feel always hankering and yearning for what you lost. If you look back on the, what, as what you were given, and what an amazing time that you were granted to have with that person, then you're always going to feel gratitude, even if it's short. And I've had to learn how to do that with, you know, a seven-year-old who, who passed away. And you say, that's just too early. That's not enough time. What kind of God takes a child at seven? But then you realize that there are people in the world who have their children for three months. There are people who have their children for a week. There are people who have their children for 20 minutes in a hospital. And, and by that comparison, seven years is an eternity. So it all depends on the way you choose to look back. And if you look back in gratitude, it doesn't hurt as much. And I think that's what The Stranger in the Lifeboat, you know, it's one of the lessons that happens in this, in this lifeboat out in the middle of the ocean that, that this character learns. Mitch, earlier we touched upon a lesson that you had learned from Maury that giving is living. And you do a lot of charitable work. Can you just tell us briefly about some of your charities and how our listeners can get involved and help? Well, sure. Um, I mean, that's kind of you to ask. I, I, as I said, in 1995, I started my first charity here in Detroit, and uh, it's grown into something that's quite large now. It's an organization called Save Detroit, and we have nine different charitable operations that include uh, daycare uh, operations for children of, of women who are in transition, or transitional housing, or going through rehab, or whatever, or trying to get jobs, and don't have anybody to watch their children, from kids as young as five days old, all the way up to two and a half years. We have uh, the nation's first medical clinic for homeless children and their mothers. Uh, we have an after-school center that has 300 kids in it uh, uh, with uh, computer programming and recreational things and all like that. We have... Uh, uh, Working Homes, Working Families program where we rehab houses and then uh, we give them to families that are working. And if they keep the house up nice and make the taxes and utility payments after two years, we give them the keys uh, and they own the house. And many programs like that here in Detroit. 
And then I operate an orphanage in Haiti that I'm at every month for 12 years that I've been there every single month. And we have 53 children that we raise there. Haiti, as you probably know, is terribly, terribly difficult place, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and the second poorest in the world. And right now going through some terrible violence and gangs and kids there just don't have a chance, especially orphan kids. And we have 53 of the most amazing kids that we not only nurture and feed and take care of medically and all that, but we have a school and they go to school four hours in English, four hours in French every day. And they're on track to graduate to go to college. And, and every one of them has a college scholarship lined up here in America. Four of them are already here. Uh, come next summer, we'll have 10 here. And uh, their goal is to you know get educated here, but then go back to Haiti, work at the orphanage for two years to give back, and then go into Haitian society and make their country a better place. And I have to tell you that the time that I spend in Haiti every month, the, you know, I sleep right there at the orphanage and my bed's right in with the kids. And, and you know, it's a four inch mattress on a, on a piece of wood with, with pillows that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't hold up a mouse, but I sleep better there than, than uh, anywhere in the world, including here, even at home in Michigan, because I guess I know that I'm doing something important and I feel needed and, I highly recommend that for anybody who's looking for contentment in their life, just find somebody who needs your help and you'll be, you'll be amazed at how good you feel about your days. And our listeners can learn more about these charities on your website, MitchAlbom.com. Yep. And uh, the uh, orphanage is HaveFaithHaiti.org, HaveFaithHaiti.org, and the uh, Detroit charities are SayDetroit.org. The book is The Stranger in the Lifeboat. If you'd like to learn more about Mitch and his work, once again, you can visit MitchAlbom.com. And Mitch, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Oh, well, you said something about hope a little earlier, and um, I think that that's really important. I think uh, there was once a book critic who was trying to take a you know jab at me um, dismissing my work and said, uh, he's the king of hope. And I smiled at that and said, if that's a pejorative, if that's a bad thing, I'm all for it. You know, you can, you can insult me that way anytime. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think we, we live in a, in a country where too often we just feel the anger and vitriol and, 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 uh, being louder than the next guy is, is all the matters and the kindness and, Things like that are out of fashion and, uh, and, 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 and stupid. And that's not the case. And the, if, you, if you don't wake up every day with a, a good helping of hope, um, this is a difficult world to navigate. But if you, if you have that gratitude, like I was talking about before, if you, uh, if you believe in something, you know, I, I, I called the, this book The Stranger in the Lifeboat for a reason because I feel that we're all kind of in a lifeboat in this world. You know, we have a lot of bumpy waves. There's the occasional shark. There's many storms. We're all trying to navigate our way through. That's the lifeboat part. The stranger part is your belief system. If you don't believe in anything, if you have no hope, then you're alone in that boat. And uh, that other force in that boat is always going to be a stranger to you. And you're not going to know it, embrace it, deal with it. But if you believe in something, whether it's God or humanity or the universe or just a sense of hopefulness for the human race, then that stranger ceases to be a stranger and it becomes your belief system. It becomes what you lean on and what you embrace and what you hold on to in the dark stormy night, you know, and and you're not alone in that lifeboat. And so I would just hope that nobody feels uh, hopeless uh, because there's nothing sadder than that. And, and, and if you have hope, then you always have a companion. And things can always improve and get better. And, uh, you know, that would be my wish to not only come out of this conversation, but, but for the world. And that's what I try to do in my books. And, and you know, I try to leave people with that message when they turn the last page. Mitch, I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. I am so happy that you have joined us on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Joan. Thanks for having me on. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. If you're a business owner and you're not using video to market your company, you're losing customers and revenue. No matter whether you're a one-person shop or your revenue is in the seven figures, video is guaranteed to improve your fortunes. Hi, I'm Ed Lamoureux. I'm the owner of Lamore Strategy Group, a marketing consultancy. The most common two things I hear about why businesses aren't using video marketing is, one, I don't know how to do video marketing, and two, I don't feel comfortable on camera. Well, to both of those objections, I say this. Video shouldn't be scary. Failure should be scary. Numbers don't lie. According to HubSpot, video is the number one form of media used in content strategy. And according to WiseOwl, 84% of people say that they've been convinced to buy a product or service by watching a company's video. So how can you ride the video wave to your own success? Well, as Nike says, just do it. Practice, delete, and repeat until it looks good and feels right. And don't forget, you should tell stories if you want to get engagement. No one wants to watch ads. Well, perhaps with the exception of advertising agencies who uh, make their living off them. Learn how to tell a story, and you'll soon be watching the clicks and views multiply exponentially. If you need help with your video needs, give us a call or visit our website at lamorestrategies.com. This is Ed Lamoureux from Lamore Strategy Group, where our favorite story to tell is yours. Recently, I was flipping through a toy catalog, shopping for a gift for a French child, when I stumbled upon an item that had brought hours of enjoyment to my children. It's a square box that has different shapes cut out into each side with matching pieces. The goal of the toy is for children to fit each piece into its corresponding hole, thus learning to recognize shapes and how to fit like things together. My boys spent hours placing the various shapes into their respective holes. Most times, the pieces fit together with ease, but on occasion, they would work tirelessly trying to make the wrong piece fit into the wrong hole, an oval in a circle, a square in a triangle, a rectangle in a square. As I reminisced about them sitting on the floor working at this task, I began to think about how this activity mimics what we do throughout our life, work to make the pieces fit. Hi, this is Joan Herman, here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Sometimes our choices fit perfectly, but other times, no matter how much energy we expend, they just don't fit. How many times have you been in a friendship or romance that didn't work out? In most situations, when the breakup occurred, anger, heartbreak, and disappointment soon followed. Then blame. Someone must be at fault. Someone was wrong. You tried so hard, so why couldn't it survive? Instead of being consumed with anger and resentment, Did you ever stop and think that maybe, just maybe, it was simply a wrong fit and that no one is to blame? Like the pieces in the toy, each of us has an individual design derived from life experiences. We are each as unique as a circle, square, triangle, or octagon. When we make the right match, everything fits perfectly. But when we have the wrong pieces, it doesn't work, no matter how hard we push or on what angle. It would be ridiculous to say something is wrong with the circle because it didn't fit in the square. We recognize the shapes as being different, so why do we make those claims about people? Why do we assign blame to a person and then spend the rest of our life being angry and resentful, thinking about what could have been? Perhaps a new perspective would be to view each of us as the pieces of the toy, unique with our own characteristics, perfect in our design, but not always a fit no matter how hard we try to squeeze it together and how much we want it. Perhaps looking at life experiences in this way may make it easier to let go and stop assigning blame. It may enable us to forgive, 
and move forward. So the next time you experience the loss of a valued relationship, rather than being consumed with anger and bitterness, just release it. Try to view yourself and the other person as shapes, different from each other, but with their own purpose, beauty, and value. Perfect in their individuality, but they just don't fit. Thanks for spending these minutes with me. For more information and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Parents dream of their children living a happy, healthy life. All they ever want for them is the best of everything. So when a child develops a drug addiction, it can be devastating. Drug addiction is a progressive problem, and the longer one goes without help, the stronger the addiction becomes. People will do anything to feed the need. Today's guest, Linda Lee Henderson, has experienced every parent's nightmare, the addiction of a beloved son. She joins us today to talk about her journey through her son's addictive years. Linda is the author of the book, Wake Up Mom, Can't You See Your Son is an Addict? Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Joan. I appreciate it. So, Linda, let's begin by talking about your son. What was he experiencing before the addiction began? Before the addiction began, he was a normal child doing a normal life. He was ADHD, but I made sure that he had a a pattern schedule, a a schedule where he got everything done and he had a routine to follow. So the better his routine, the better his performance was in school and in everything else. And he did a lot of sports. He was very active in sports and very successful at them. He played ice hockey. He played lacrosse. He played baseball as a youngster, and he became very proficient at golf. And it was interesting because I found the more on his schedule, the more he stayed in touch with keeping up to his schedules. So he didn't have a problem until he went to college. And then what happened, Linda? Well, at that time, he wasn't around me, and I wasn't you know, monitoring his schedule. This is all about monitoring, Joan. And I found when I sent him away to college, he would be able to manage on his own, which for the first year, he was fine. He got involved in a lot of activities. And by the sophomore year, he phoned me one day and said, you know, Mom, I'm really having a problem focusing. And I said, well, I know, but you have to, you know, make sure you have your schedule for every day. He said, well, I'm having a really hard time doing that. So I sought out the help of a psychiatrist, and he prescribed a drug for me. Now, as a youngster, I knew he was ADHD, but I never put him on the then popular drug of Ritalin. I didn't know the ramifications of it then, but I just decided I didn't want him to be on a drug. However, this psychiatrist put him on the drug Adderall, and that's when he started taking it. And I thought, okay, well, that's very adult, you know, adultish of him. And uh, if that's how he wants to monitor his behavior, I guess I don't see a problem with that because he's under a doctor's care. And so I just did not have any warning signs whatsoever of what was to come. So you're thinking everything is going as it's supposed to. He's taking his medication that's prescribed by a doctor. When did you realize that there was a problem? Were there warning signs? Well, the warning signs I should have seen, I, I always dismissed as him not taking his medication. His sisters would say, well, Dane is acting very strange and this and that. And I'd say, well, you know, he is ADHD and he is taking medication. Maybe he didn't take his meds today. Or, you know, I always seem to make an excuse for him. Um, as a parent, I guess that's what we do. But it really, it really came to a head when he then not only went abroad, but he went abroad and I wasn't able to monitor. I, I wasn't even able to have conversations with him on a weekly basis. He went abroad and took his medication with him and then was writing me emails. And suddenly I got an email saying he lost his medication and I was going over to visit him. Could I bring more? to him. He, you know, he's really apologetic about losing it and would I mind going to calling the doctor and getting more. So of course I did thinking, you know, this is all what happened. But what happens as 
people start to abuse their drug, they need more and more of it, and they'll do anything to get it. So the lies began about that time. So unbeknownst to me, he was taking more and more of this, and I did not know it because he was so far away. He was in Europe at the time. And then it just went downhill from there. And when I picked him up finally at the airport, I could see when he finally did come home, I could see he was, he was very sickly. Linda, what did this experience do to your family? You mentioned your daughters. How did this impact the family unit? Well, in our family, all the disagreements began pretty much um, as soon as he began to experience his health problems, which nobody seemed to be able to, to find what was going on. And we would begin to argue about his financial situation, but the family argued constantly because my daughters kept saying, oh, you're sticking up for him. You're trying to take care of him. You're enabling him. And I kept saying, well, he, he's sick. And again, at that time, I didn't know what was going on. I was defensive and saying, you're under the, he's under the care of a doctor. He's taking a prescribed drug. But I did not know he was abusing it then. And so, yeah, the close relationship we had, it was, it was tested constantly by our disagreements over your brother. It's only now, like years and years later, that this whole thing has begun to you know, resolve itself. You started to see that there was a problem. Your daughter saw it before you did. And you're watching your son get sicker and sicker. When did he finally realize that there was a problem and that he wanted to get help? Well, even he, it's interesting because after I wrote the book, we had a chance to talk about a lot of situations, and I asked him, what if I missed? What, I, I, I've written this story about us, and I, I, I said to him, I still have a lot of unanswered questions, and if you can fill me in on really what was going on at this particular time. And interestingly enough, after he came back from college, and of course he, d- he didn't graduate with his class because of not having the correct courses completed, and again, that was due to taking this drug, and he was able to get a job in in the city, in New York City, a very good job, which he eventually lost. But he said to me during that conversation, he goes, Mom, he goes, I was, I was taking a lot of the drug then when I was working, but even then I didn't realize I was addicted to it. So this took a few years for the whole collapse, as it were, to happen. He lost that job, went to work for a job as a waiter because he could get nothing else. And it all came to a head when he became so desperate to get his drug that he started stealing. Unfortunately, it was from me. And that's, and that's when I realized what was going on. I confronted him with this, and that's when he finally confessed to it. And that was, that was actually March, I think it was 11th, 2011. And we all were there at the table that day, and we just looked at each other, and I'm like, he needs help. He just needs help. But that's the first time I realized he was an addict. And Linda, what has his journey been like since that time? Since that day, oh, wow, it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. At first, at first, it wasn't. I mean, it was because of the, of his of finally recognizing that he was an addict. And I said, well, I'll, I'll just do everything I can to help. So I had to find a facility that would take him. At that time, this is 2011. Adderall wasn't even recognized as a drug that could really cause addiction. There was a lot of discussion about it and articles at that time. All the articles that are out today weren't out then. So finding a facility that would consider him an addict became a challenge. I finally did find one. Then my daughters and I had to drive him down to Philadelphia and hope that they would take him in this facility. So they finally, after interviewing him, said that they would. And so they accepted him there, much to our relief. And we thought, okay, this is all good. He's, he's in good hands now. He's going to get better. And after 11 days, they sent him home because the insurance company wouldn't pay anymore. So they sent him back to my care. And I felt ill-equipped to deal with it, um, but I did the best I could. And we did establish guidelines and a schedule and everything. And he was able to get a job and went back to work. And for five years, everything was really good. And I'm like, okay, we've crossed that hurdle on with life, and then, and then unfortunately, there was a relapse. And that time wasn't good because then my son, who's such a good-hearted person, he was dating a girl who wanted to donate a kidney to her mother to save her life. 
the whole family tried to talk him out of it, including me, but he was determined to do this. So he, he went ahead with it. And as a result, um, he was exposed to drugs again, and that's when he relapsed. You said that you felt ill-equipped to deal with it, and I'm sure so many parents feel the same way. Addiction is a growing problem today. So what advice do you offer to other parents to help them navigate their child's addiction? You know, I, I was a very independent person, always had been, single mom, and I thought I could manage everything, and I thought I could manage this. Um, so I went to some group sessions with Dana and attended with him and, you know, listened to the stories. And unfortunately, I didn't, I don't, I don't think I attended enough group sessions. I didn't, while he was getting the help, I should have been getting help also to be his support system, which I didn't recognize at the time. And that's what I would suggest to parents, that they get support to help them through it talk to other people, talk about it, and recognize that it's something that they need to discuss if they're going to heal as well. Because while the addict is getting all the help they need, the family has to be strong enough or the person who's helping them have to be strong enough to help them through it. And that, that's kind of where I felt like I fell, fell down on the job. And I think that's such a great point, Linda, because when you're going through something like this, you do feel so alone and so reaching out and seeking help and support, I, I think that is such an important part of the process. Oh, definitely it is. The first time he came out of rehab, John, like I said, I thought he was, quote, cured and not realizing how tentative, how precarious the whole situation was. Because an addict, I know now, is, is never cured. They're, they're always, they're an addict. It's a condition that's never solved, but it's something that not only they have to deal with for the rest of their life, but whoever they're with, and, they, and that person, whoever their support system is, has to always be there with them and for them. And you've got to do whatever you can as, as that individual to, to stay strong in yourself and in your family unit, because they're always fighting it. They're, they're never cured. The book is Wake Up Mom, Can't You See Your Son as an Addict? If you'd like to get more information about Linda and her book, you can visit lindaleehenderson.com. Linda, thank you so much for spending this time with us and for sharing your story. I can only imagine how difficult it is for you to go through this over and over again, but I know the impact that you are having on so many lives. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Joan. Thanks for, thank you for allowing me to share my thoughts. You're right. It's always difficult to talk about, but unfortunately, I'm becoming quite used to it. And I really do hope it does help. It does help other people. Because um, so many people are affected by this insidious disease. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. What is music? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, a lifestyle app for relaxation and meditation through sound and music. According to Sanskrit, music is rhythm and tone expressed through singing, dancing, and playing. And music has potent effects on health. There are some people who think the higher purpose of music is healing. The great musician and mystic Hazrat Inayat Khan said, It is the health of the soul that brings health to the physical body. That healing the physical body does not always heal the soul. So the question becomes, what kind of music can heal? Well, any kind of music can heal, but singing is probably the most potent healer. Singing brings prana into the body on the inhale and releases prana through the expression of the song, touching the heart of the listener. Singing is life. Singing is joy. Singing is love. Everyone has a voice and everyone has a song waiting to be expressed. If you want to feel good, sing a song, sing along to a favorite song, or just hum a melody that feels good to you. I think you will find that it relaxes you, instantly lifts your spirit, and brings peace and happiness to your day. If you want to feel better right now, sing a song. And if you want to learn more about healing music, go to livingthesoundlife.com. 
Have you considered what would happen to your family if you suddenly suffered an injury or sickness while in your retirement years? Would your current coverage, Medicare or Medicaid be enough? Hi, my name is Kate Toby, financial services professional with the Fortis Agency. I'm here to share a few tips on the importance of long-term care coverage. Many people do not realize how quickly their savings and assets can spend down to help cover medical and at-home care expenses in retirement. You spend your whole life building your wealth, all to see it suddenly spend down in a few years to get you the care you really need. Long-term care insurance can be used to help pay those monthly bills from hospitals, at-home aid, or assisted living facilities so you do not have to pay entirely out of pocket. Check with your advisor to see if your current coverage is enough and learn how you can fund this type of insurance policy. For more information on long-term care options, send me an email at ktoby at thefortisagency.com. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Thanks for staying with us. Our next guest, Esther Pippoli, helps families navigate life's difficult moments. She is the owner and founder of Loss of Life Advocates, also known as Lola. Her company provides confidential concierge grief support to families, business owners, and employers, helping them navigate the operational side of loss. Esther is here today to discuss navigating grief. Welcome, Esther. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Esther, you work with people when they're going through what may be the most difficult time of their life. What have you learned about grief? You know, there's so many misconceptions and misinformation around what people say and what they do when someone is um, suffering through a loss. When someone is in pain, what advice do you offer to help that person navigate this process? You know, the very first thing I tell people is what is our initial knee-jerk reaction is to say, I'm so sorry. And really, that isn't really giving the person that's grieving really anything to hold on to. One, if you're saying, I'm so sorry for your loss, if it's a mother or somebody you didn't know, saying sorry is just kind of a hollow word. You know, sorry is when you do something to somebody else, you step on their foot, you actually do something to hurt them. That's an apology. That's an I'm so sorry. What we need to do is turn that I'm so sorry into putting an emotion around it. I'm so sad to hear that your mother passed away. I'm really frustrated for you because you must be so overwhelmed with grief and sadness. I feel badly for you. How can I help? Those are just a few things that when people start asking me, like, how do I even communicate with somebody around this? I tell them, first of all, don't apologize for their loss. Just put some emotion behind it. And I guarantee that person that's receiving it will be so grateful. I just wrote a blog about how I think that we've lost the personal part of our communication. Because of social media or texting, when there's a loss, people will send, you know, my condolences, hugs and kisses, so sorry for your loss. And they think that they have offered genuine support to someone. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I think the the power of touch, of course, is the number one thing that we, we love, right? When you're grieving, that is so important. And a lot of people in the grieving field will say that, you know, due to COVID and due to social media, we have lost a little bit of our etiquette around it. Um, not being to be not being able to be close to people because of the pandemic and these recent months, I would say that the number one thing that people really drive towards are voices. And that's the one thing that we can offer somebody. And even if you reach out and you don't get them on the phone. Leaving a voicemail is something that they can go back to and listen to, even later, and their family members can find some some type of support in that. So I would honestly say to people, you know, we live in a social media world, Facebook, LinkedIn, you know, texting. Um, Put that down for a second. Just pick up your phone and make an old-fashioned phone call. Leave a voicemail. If the voicemail is full, Always, it's always good to throw a note in the mail because getting a card in the mail is, is still important and it's still meaningful. I couldn't agree more because that's what I entitled the blog, Make the Call. Have that human mm-hmm. connection. It goes so far in, in letting someone know that they're loved and supported. Just sitting there listening to someone talking about their emotions. What, you know, what I had noticed when I went through a lot of loss, people would text me, how are you? And the easy response is to just say, I'm good, thank you. But when you're having a conversation, almost nine times out of 10 in that conversation, emotions will surface and you'll have a meaningful dialogue. Absolutely. I think that's so important. And, you know, and I always do tell people that are grieving, it is perfectly fine to say, I'm not well, but thank you for asking. That really does put people a little bit back on their heels because they really want to hear that you're okay. 
but sometimes just saying I'm fine or I'm okay is not giving them the full picture because you really do need to have a tribe that goes through grief with you. So saying how you feel, not well, but thank you for checking in, goes a lot further with your tribe. So Esther, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Well, you know, first of all, you know, don't say you're sorry for somebody's loss. I really think that's the most important thing that I could have ever learned from the grief recovery method. Well, getting certified in that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I learned what to say, what not to say, and when to say it. And really putting those meaningful words behind that was so important for me. So really knowing that when you, you have that person that's, that's, you know, had that sudden loss or that you know that the loss is going to come up, putting some words around it for yourself to be able to be really empathetic. So don't forget that these people that are suffering, even though it may have been months and months or years and years of somebody slowly passing away, you know, reach out to them, give them that human touch of a voice, send them a card, and don't be afraid to say, look, I'm here to be present with you, and even if it means being quiet, I'm here. Esther, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Esther and her work, you can visit lossoflifeadvocates.com. And as always, to hear more from Esther, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Esther. Esther, thank you again. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.